Good morning, Grace. It's good to see you again. It's good to be back in the pulpit. Good to be back in First Kings again, opening up God's Word with y'all. So open your Bibles or your phones to First Kings chapter 11. And just by way of reminder, we do have the tri-tip barbecue dinner at 5 o'clock tonight. Our church history for dummies class will continue at 6 p.m. in the education building. And if you haven't come, you are more than welcome to come. We're going to kind of speed through the last half of the first century, and we're going to begin talking about the apostolic fathers, those people who were really ordained by the 12 apostles to be the new leaders of the church, kind of like the new Jedi Knights leading the church into the second century. So you're more than welcome to join us at 6 p.m. tonight for Church History for Dummies. Open your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 11, and while you're doing that, let me tell you that I had a marvelous vacation in Texas and Oklahoma I took a few of our kids, and we visited family, and I also got to eat the big cat sandwich at Heim Barbecue like I planned, and it was glorious. If you're ever in the DFW area, you need to visit Heim Barbecue. In fact, if you're anywhere near Texas, at least a couple of states removed, you need to visit Heim Barbecue. So I've been gone, and maybe you're new to Grace in the past few weeks, and maybe I haven't met you yet, and if I haven't, please introduce yourself after the service. And if you are relatively new to Grace in the last few months, let me extend a welcome to you from this church family. We welcome you here. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, filthy rich, Dirt poor e no habla inglés. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or are still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, or had religion shoved down your throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. You are welcome here in this church, and we hope that you find grace to be a place where you can heal up, especially if you've been beaten up by churches, beaten up by Christians, beaten up by religion. We want this church to be green pastures and still waters for you, a place of rest. 
And so we have prayed diligently for the Holy Spirit to help us create a gospel culture here of gospel plus safety plus time. That's what we're aiming for here in this church. We want this church to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures, where they hear good news every single week. We're going to be looking today at how Solomon totally messed up his life because of his sin. And so we hate sin. Do we hate sin in this church, even though we're welcoming and gracious? Absolutely. In this church family, do we take seriously the Bible's call to put to death what is earthly in you? Yes. Do we take seriously Paul's admonition to let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions? Yes, of course. But when we totally blow it like Solomon does in 1 Kings chapter 11, what we need is a safe place to come to hear the gospel again and again and again. Not shame, not guilt, not I told you so. We need the gospel when we fail like Solomon does. And when the gospel, which is good news for bad people, Good news for bad people like us. When the gospel is the main focus of a church, it creates this gospel culture that the church desperately needs. It creates this environment of freedom. When the gospel is the main thing of all of our ministries, it helps create this kind of culture where Jesus is worshipped and adored. And where sins are confessed. And where relationships are reconciled. And where money is no longer king. And where the races come together in unity. And where laughter and dancing is normal. That's what the gospel does. Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God. If you want to change, if you want to change your life, change your heart, if you want to change a church culture, you need the power of God. And what is the power of God? It's the gospel. Jesus died for people like us. That's how you change a church. Not mission, not vision, not core values. You can talk about those. What changes sinners? What changes the church? It's the gospel, which is the power of God. That's what the gospel does because the gospel is the power of God. So we want grace to become a place where laughter and dancing is the norm. I mean, how about that? Laughter and dancing is the norm. How about when people ask you, what's your church like? We laugh a lot. We dance because we're free. In this kind of gospel environment, people feel free and safe enough to admit their real problems. In a church like this, openness is normal. Forgiveness is normal. And I hope you feel that here at Grace. You are welcome here. As your pastor, I don't want any of us to mess up our lives. I mean, who wants to mess up their life, totally ruin their life? Not me. And that's why God has littered his word 
He's littered the Bible with warnings. And what we'll see today as we look at King Solomon is the sobering reality about the nature of indwelling sin. That sin dwells in each and every one of us. And here is that sobering warning. Sin is a boomerang. That's what Old Testament scholar Alec Motier said. He said, sin itself is a boomerang. This is the way sin works. It has a boomerang quality as if it were a living agent in its own right. Sin is like a boomerang. It always comes back. It always comes back to haunt you. And it came back to King Solomon big time. So 1 Kings chapter 11 at verse 9, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. You should hear the shock In the tone of verse 9, Solomon, a sinner, turned away from Yahweh who had been so good to him. Yahweh is God's covenant name in the Hebrew language. Yahweh, this holy, different, infinite, other God, appeared to Solomon not once, but twice. I mean, two times God himself appeared to Solomon and had a conversation with him. Wow, I don't know about you, but that has never happened to me once. The only time I have ever heard God speak to me was when I opened up the Bible and began to read. God just doesn't go around talking to people all the time, even in the Old and New Testaments. So we're supposed to feel the shock in verse 9. God spoke to Solomon two times. He has appeared to Solomon two times And God didn't just speak to Solomon, he warned him. He warned him about not worshiping other gods. He warned him about letting his heart drift from the Lord, drift from his first love. And sadly, that's exactly what happened to Solomon. King Solomon let his heart drift. And as we saw a few weeks ago in verses 1 through 8 of 1 Kings 11, Solomon married foreign women and began worshiping the gods that they worshiped, the gods of his many wives. And so now we have the Lord appearing to Solomon to speak with him now a third time. But this time it's not good news. This time Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, shows up with a few consequences in his hands. And here's why. Those sobering sobering words that Yahweh speaks in verse 11. Since this has been your practice. It wasn't that Solomon church shopped these altars of these false gods. He actually built them, as we saw last time we were in this passage. Solomon worshipped these gods. He worshipped these gods through sacred prostitution, which we saw last time. 
He worshiped these gods through child sacrifice. Solomon built planned parenthood buildings for his wives so that they could offer their children as a sacrifice to their gods. This was Solomon's practice, the Lord says. Solomon was a faithful church member at these false shrines and altars. He was actively involved in ministry there. Put simply, Solomon didn't keep the first commandment. He didn't worship Yahweh exclusively. And so this is just first commandment business here in 1 Kings 11. It's just first commandment business, which is everything. You shall have no other gods before me is not a suggestion for us. Jesus means it. Now, we live in a world where even Christians believe that the first commandment is optional. We live in a world where even Christians think that they don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. A world where people want to unhitch the church from the Old Testament. Crazy, isn't it? You should think that's crazy. Listen, God has no patience for this kind of stuff. God is not willing to negotiate on this. He won't negotiate on this. Don't be tricked by any pastor or any author who tells you that obeying the Ten Commandments is optional. That's what Solomon thought. And we're about to find out where I got him. I mean, sure, you can choose to worship the God of your own creativity. You can fashion God out to be all that you want him to be. You can cater him to be all that you want him to be. You can say that you don't want want to be hitched to such outdated, ancient ideas about Jesus. But it won't be the God of the Bible that you worship. You can build all the shrines and altars that you want. You can come up with your own ideas about God and about your life and how you should live. But you might end up damning your family for generations. Let me say that again. You can build all the shrines and altars that you want. You can come up with your own ideas about God And what his word says, how it should be interpreted, how you should be able to live your life. You can do that, but you might end up damning your family for generations. You might start something that has a domino effect in your family for generations to come. You can end up like Solomon. I can end up like Solomon. He exasperated the Lord, who is very merciful and gracious, He tested the Lord's patience. And yet, we see that word yet in verse 12. Yet, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it. I will not tear away the kingdom in your days. The yet in verse 12 shows us just how merciful Jesus really is. For the sake of David, King David, Solomon's father, the tearing away of the kingdom would happen with one of Solomon's sons. But, and the but follows the yet here, but Solomon still has consequences to his sins. The Lord raises up adversaries against King Solomon. Three of them, in fact. Let's 
briefly look at each one in order. First up is a man by the name of Hadad. Look at verse 14. And the Lord, Yahweh, raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tophanes, the queen. And the sister of Tophanes bore him Jenubat, his son, whom Tophanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Jenubat was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And Hadad said to him, only let me depart. So this man named Hadad, this Edomite, had been on the run and was hiding out in Egypt. David's right-hand man, Joab, had started killing all the Edomites. So Hadad, he was a little child, was rushed off into hiding. And he eventually ended up in Egypt and found favor in Pharaoh's eyes, even marrying Pharaoh's sister-in-law. But when Hadad heard that David had died and that Joab had died, he wanted to go back home to Edom. And as he was unpacking the the moving van... The Lord raised him up to be an adversary against King Solomon. As Hadad was settling into his new home, getting to know his new neighbors, the Lord handpicked him to be a thorn in King Solomon's side. God picked a pagan man, Pharaoh's brother-in-law, to be a thorn in Solomon's side Because Solomon had turned away from the Lord and began worshiping other gods. God did this. God did this. And so the Lord is not all warm and fuzzy like we want to make him out to be. The text tells us that the Lord raised up Hadad as an adversary against King Solomon. And now the modern man reads this. And he thinks, who in the world does Yahweh think he is? Raising up an adversary against Solomon? I thought Jesus was a soft pushover. That's not very loving, Jesus. I don't think I like you now, Jesus. Please give me back my toys. I'm going home. That's how our culture views Jesus, once they realize that he's serious about the first commandment and that he might be so serious about it that he raises up adversaries against you. The God of the Bible simply will not be boxed in by cultural preferences. Sorry, not sorry. Our culture cannot figure out why Jesus demands exclusive worship. They can't figure out why Jesus gets so worked up over idolatry. Why does Jesus get so worked up over idolatry? He needs to relax. They've got CBD oil for that now, Jesus. They've got no category for a God like this. 
And these days, it's even crept into the church. Be very careful of any preacher or teacher or author that says that Jesus turns a blind eye to your sin. He certainly didn't turn a blind eye to Solomon's sin. Solomon is learning through Hadad the Edomite that sin is a boomerang. Solomon is learning that sin itself is a boomerang, that it will come back to haunt you. Solomon is learning that this is the way sin works. He's learning that sin has this boomerang quality to it, as if it were a living agent all on its own. It goes out and it comes back. And as we'll see next, Solomon will have another boomerang come into his life when the Lord also raises up resin. Look at verse 23. God also raised up as an adversary to him resin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. Wow, the audacity of Yahweh, the audacity of Jesus. How dare he do what he does in verse 23? God raised up as an adversary. Those words have shattered many an opinion of Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus until he raises up an adversary. Everyone loves Jesus until he allows a marauding band to do you harm. Everyone loves Jesus until he raises up an adversary who loathes you all the days of your life. Now let's pause and remember the original audience of First and Second Kings. Who is it being written to? To God's people who are in exile in Babylon. Because they worshipped other gods, they ended up being deported out of Israel into Babylon. They were living as slaves in exile in Babylon because of their sin, because they worshipped other gods just like Solomon. Would they read this text and not see where their sin had led them? Would they read this story of Solomon and not be led to repentance? Would you and I hear this text today and not be led to repentance? It's why this chapter is in the Bible, to lead us to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is simply us just renewing our wedding vows with Jesus. Repentance is just renewing your your wedding vows with Jesus, your first love. Well, Jesus is going to make more people mad because he's not done with all this raising up adversaries business. He's got one more coming Solomon's way. Look at verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerudah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king, against Solomon. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shelanite, found him on the road. 
Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you, the ten, give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have, that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hands, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel." And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak the king of Egypt and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? In the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So Solomon has a really good employee named Jeroboam. He likes this guy. And one day, Jeroboam is out walking in the field, and the prophet Ahijah shows up wearing some new clothes. And suddenly, Ahijah starts to go all Hulk Hogan, if you remember him, on his robe, and he starts ripping his clothes into 12 pieces. And then Ahijah tells Jeroboam to take 10 strips of his clothes. And Ahijah the prophet tells Jeroboam that the Lord is going to give him 10 tribes in Israel that he will rule over as king. But then, just like Solomon, the Lord also warned Jeroboam against walking away and serving other gods like Solomon did. But then, once word got out on Facebook that Jeroboam was going to get ten tribes to rule over, what did Solomon do? Solomon put a hit out on Jeroboam. Solomon tried to have Jeroboam killed, but Jeroboam escaped to Egypt. So let's pause and ask, why did the Lord, why did God create this startup company called Adversary Razors? Number one, because he loved Solomon. Number two, because Solomon can't escape consequences. And number three, because the, revel- the theology of Revelation chapter 3 is the theology of 1 Kings chapter 11. Revelation 3, 19 through 20, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, 
and eat with him and he with me. An open invitation to be with Jesus when he knocks on your heart and says, don't go that way. Listen, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. I can choose my sin, but I can't choose my consequences. God will still love you. I mean, we all sin every day, but I'm talking major, major sins. Now, little sins will add up. I'm not just saying if you get mad at your wife, then boom, consequences, you get struck by lightning and you're dead. Because there'll be no husbands here, right? God will still love you, but you can't choose the consequences that will come into your life because of your sin and because of your choices. That's just reality, isn't it? Now, of course, we can be and we are forgiven of our sins. Thank God we're forgiven of our sins. Because we all sin too much every single day. We are forgiven as Christians no matter how heinous our sins. The sins that we can't seem to forget, Jesus can't remember. That's the gospel. But that doesn't mean that there are no consequences to forgiven sins what happens in Vegas doesn't necessarily stay in Vegas it may follow you home what happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem what happens at the shrines and altars of the false gods Ashtoreth, Molech and Chemosh don't stay at the shrines and altars of the false gods of Ashtoreth, Molech and Chemosh don't believe that lie about Las Vegas that you've heard 1 Kings chapter 11 is in the Bible to remind you that that lie, that's a lie you've heard about Las Vegas. 1 Kings 11 should be posted on billboards as you drive away from Las Vegas or as you drive away from the altar of Molech. Yes, the gospel is true. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus alone, then his cross satisfied the condemning wrath of God against us and against our sins. And now, as his children, we live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of our Heavenly Father forever. That's settled. It is finished. But Revelation 3 also reminds us that Precisely because we are God's beloved children, he will discipline us. Our justification is not at stake. Justification that we've been declared righteous by God, blameless, without sin in his eyes. Our justification is not at stake. Our adoption as his children is not at stake. All of that was settled at the cross once and for all. The sins that we can't seem to forget, Jesus cannot remember. That is the gospel. But now, when God disciplines us because he loves us, he is deepening us in our sanctification. He's transforming us into his image. And sometimes that includes painful disciplines. Sometimes God opens up your heart and he shows you the stench and filth and squalor that is deep down within there that nobody else can see. And that's humbling. And it's it's painful to have God expose your heart, isn't it? It's painful to put sin to death, isn't it? Because when you put sin to death, you're putting yourself to death. 
It's painful to put self to death. Because all I want to do is stroke self's ego, pat myself on the back and say, I'm the greatest thing in the world next to Jesus. It's like Jesus, me, and then way down, way, way down there is the rest of y'all. I'm up there with Jesus. It's painful to have Jesus rip open my heart and say, let me show you what's really on the inside. Listen, if God never disciplined us, if he never let us experience consequences, could we even trust his heart? Good fathers and good mothers discipline their children and give them consequences. And when God does this with us, he is really connecting with us as our father. He's loving us in that moment. If he never let us experience consequences, could we ever really trust his heart? Your heavenly father, Christian, put 1 Kings chapter 11 in your Bible to lovingly remind you of this universal truth that sin is a boomerang. 1 Kings chapter 11 is in the Bible so that you would be reminded that sin itself is a boomerang so that you and I would be reminded that this is the way sin works. So that we would trust our Heavenly Father and believe again that sin has a boomerang quality as if it were a living agent in its own right. So that we would learn that to despise the Lord's commandments is to despise the Lord who gives the commandments. Think about that right now. Whatever God is calling you to do in his word, and you know it, to despise the Lord's commandments is to despise the Lord who gives the commandment. And who wants to despise Jesus? Not me. Jesus has every right to make demands of me. He made me. He's my creator. And he has been so, so good to me. He lived a perfect life for me. For me, you should be shocked by that. He lived a perfect life for you. Some of y'all don't know me that well. I'm rotten to the core. He died a perfect death for me. Y'all should be shocked and say, he died for you? Wow. He has been nothing but good to me. Nothing but good. And when he makes demands of me in his word, it's all for my good. It's not to make me miserable. In making demands of me and making exclusive claims on my life, Jesus is trying to help me not ruin my life. He knows what is best for me, not me. I think I know what's best for me, but I don't. He knows what's best for me. When Jesus makes demands of me in his word, he does it to make me happy. He does it so that I will walk in freedom. He does it so that laughter and dancing will be the norm in my life. Listen, Jesus loves us so much that he tells us what our life will be like if we despise him and if we despise his word. He loves us enough to say, this is what your life is going to be like if you despise me. If you despise my word, listen, if we ruin our lives because of our sin, because of choices and consequences come into our life that we don't like, we have no right to get mad at Jesus. He's made it very clear here. 
You walk away from me, you let your heart drift, you're going to ruin your life. We have no right to be mad at him. Instead, he loves us so much, he tells us what our life will be like if we despise him and despise his word. I mean, Jesus tells it like it is. You have to appreciate that about him. He's upfront about everything. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He lays it all out on the table. He shows you all of his cards. Here's what, here's, here's what I have in my hand. You can see it. None of this. Here you go. We can know exactly where we stand with him. No guessing. No wondering what his expectations are. He has laid it all out and given us a book that is full of verses that tell us what he's like. Verses that tell us how his world works. Verses that tell us what he expects of us. And verses that tell us how we can seriously mess up our lives if we walk down the wrong path. How kind of him. Think about that. The world thinks Jesus is just this oppressive master. They don't know him. How kind of him. How kind of Jesus to be so upfront with us in his word. He tells us what he's like merciful and gracious and loving and kind and holy. And he tells us what he expects of us. No secrets, no guesswork, and if we will trust him, he will save us. He will bless us. But if we refuse him, he will discipline us. He would rather save and bless, by the way. He would rather bless our socks off. Jesus wakes up and he's like, whose socks am I going to bless off today? He would rather bless our socks off. I hope your understanding of Jesus is that he would rather bless you. Like his knee-jerk reaction is to bless people. But he will discipline us if need be. Listen, God will not sit back and endorse our stupidity. I don't know about you, but I love that about Jesus. He will not sit back and endorse our stupidity. If we're dumb enough to chase after other gods, dumb enough to harbor bitterness against someone, dumb enough to do whatever it is, whatever sin that you're struggling with, if we're dumb enough to chase after other gods, do all those things, Jesus, as his children, he's not going to, as our, our brother in Christ, God our Father, our Heavenly, he's not going to sit back and not get involved. Jesus will faithfully chase after his unfaithful bride. And isn't that what you want in God? Don't you want a God who won't leave you to yourself? Don't you want a God who doesn't support your stupidity? Don't you want a God who goes looking for you when you have run away? That's what he's doing with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. Jesus is up front. And he tells us what danger lies ahead if we refuse him. We see this all through the Bible. You can have all the money in the world. You can have the best career doing what you love and getting paid for it. You can have it all. But if you get it wrong concerning the first commandment, you'll ruin your life. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You can have it all, but if you get that wrong... You'll ruin your life. And you might find yourself smelling like sulfur and smoke for all eternity in hell 
And I don't want that for any of you. If you don't know Jesus today, why not turn to him today and fix your first commandment problem? Just say, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. I'm a sinner. I turn from living for me, and I want to live for you. I trust in what you've done for me. And if you are already a Christian, listen, your salvation is not at stake. But you can really mess up your life by taking the first commandment lightly. I can mess up my life by taking the first commandment lightly. Listen, let me tell you something about you that might shock you this morning. You are capable of falling in a way that is absolutely unthinkable to you right now. It's true for both of us, all of us. Let me repeat it. You are capable of falling in a way that is absolutely unthinkable to you right now. And Jesus knows this. And that's why he appeared to Jeroboam and warned him. And that's why he appeared to Solomon two times to warn him. Solomon thought, there's no way in the world I will walk away from you, Lord. No way. Every person who has ever walked away from Jesus at some point in their Christian walk thought they would never walk away from him, never deny him. So ask yourself this morning, Am I on the slippery slope right now toward ruining my life because I've lost my first love? Jesus? Not losing your salvation. We don't believe that here at Grace. We don't think you can lose your salvation. But we do believe that you can seriously mess up your life if you walk away from the Lord and you let your heart drift. Ask yourself this morning, am I on the slippery slope right now toward ruining my life because I have lost my first love, Jesus? Isn't he your first love? When you heard about him the first time, didn't you say, yes, I'll follow him? Again, not that God will pour his anger out on you, Christian, because he won't. He poured all of his wrath and anger out on Jesus on the cross for your sins. The penalty for your sin has been paid for, but God does discipline his children because he loves them. And so you can't lose your salvation, but you sure can mess up and ruin your life. You can mess up and ruin your marriage. You can mess up and ruin your family, your job, if you let your heart slip, if you aren't vigilant about guarding your heart. And so if your heart is cold to the Lord this morning, please understand how much he loves you. He's speaking to people here, and you know it. He's calling out to you today through this sermon, through his word, to stop what you're doing and come back home. He doesn't want you to ruin your life. So he's calling out to you today. Don't ruin your life. Don't ruin your marriage. Don't ruin your family. It's easier to turn around right now than it is after you are drowning in the quicksand of consequences. You might just now be falling into the quicksand. You don't think it's quicksand. Because the devil has deceived you and said, look at this crystal clear pool, swimming pool. It's just the right temperature. You can fall in and cool off and it will satisfy you. But that's not reality. The reality is that it's quicksand. You might be halfway in the quicksand this morning. You think you're dipping your toe into a really refreshing pool. It's a lie. Whatever sin it is, 
Reach out to Jesus now and repent. Renew your wedding vows with him, your first love. Come back to your first love. As we close, hear these words from Ian Duguid. He said, let us bring this closer to home. For Israel, and I would say Solomon, for Israel is not the only one who has been gloriously loved by God and then proved spectacularly unfaithful. We have turned our backs on the God who gave us life and breath, choosing to pursue our idols instead. But the Lord does the same thing with us that he did with Old Testament Israel. He pursues us out in the wilderness of our own making, where we end up cold, naked, isolated, and alone, drowning in shame, abandoned by the very things in which we put our trust. There, he calls us to come back to him. He wants you to know that even while your heart has been cold and hard toward him, his heart has remained dizzyingly, dazzlingly set on you. While you have been saying, wow, you are beautiful to all kinds of ugly substitutes, Jesus still looks at you and says, wow, you are beautiful. You are a lily among the thorns. You are one of a kind, and I still love you. Even while you are running away, his loving heart still pursues you wherever you go. Jesus wants you to know today that even when your heart is cold and hard towards him and his commandments, his heart remains dizzyingly, dazzlingly set on you. Man, that is good news, isn't it? When our hearts grow cold and distant, Jesus' heart remains set on us. Warm, tender affections remain with him towards us. That makes repentance sweet. When you see Jesus as the faithful one who continues to love you when you are unfaithful, that makes repentance sweet. So what say we all repent today? That seems like an appropriate response to this passage in God's word. Let's do that together now, shall we? Let's renew our wedding vows with Jesus. Let's renew our wedding vows with our first love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done for us. And we repent. We own up to the fact that we are so easily enamored by so many things in this world and we so easily lose our first love, our love for you. We drift. Sometimes we don't even know it until it's too late. So we ask you, first forgive us. Forgive us. Help us to feel your warm, tender affections toward us now. May we renew ourselves and give us strength by your Holy Spirit to live for you and to love you and to honor you. We don't want to despise you. We want to love you and glorify you. Would you help us as individuals and would you help us as a church family? Help us to believe all that we are because of what you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen.